Hey, music lovers, the Cannamom Show podcast in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at lampkinguitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N Guitars.com. Take the guesswork out of your cannabis shopping with the ECS DNA Kit by Endocana Health. I did this years ago, and it continues to empower me to get nerdy with my cannabis choices. Right now, you can save 25% off your DNA test at endodna.com using promo code POD25. Your purchase includes the EndoDNA Collection Kit, EndoDecoded Report, Personalized Cannabinoid and Terpene Suggestions, EndoAligned Product Matching in Your State, Suggested dosage guidelines and optimum methods of administration. Once you know your personal ECS data, you can shop Endo supplements tailored specifically for you. And right now, Endo DNA is celebrating their new patent with a BOGO offer on their Effica Soft Gels lineup. Since so many of you struggle with sleep, I want to highlight Effica Unwind. Created to support healthy sleep cycles using a patented proprietary formulation of hemp-derived CBD, terpenes, and essential oils. If sleep is eluding you, sweet dreams are made of this. So buy one, get one, my friend. You can shop online at endodna.com. And don't forget, promo code POD25 at checkout to save 25% on your DNA test kit. Welcome. You're listening to Casually Baked, the podcast, home base for the can of curious. Thanks for tuning in. It's high time. We had a high time together. Together. Yes, it's high time. We had a high time. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, your host and cannabis lifestyle guide. We're celebrating the kings of composting in this Worm 101 podcast with Dan Razor, CEO of Fed and Happy. Dan is a serial entrepreneur who fell in love with the soil at an early age, and after a whirlwind of opportunities, fully committed to building the ideas of Fed and Happy into everything he does. We discuss the role of worms in the soil ecosystem how it all works, and the benefits of worm castings for growing cannabis, mushrooms, and your favorite fruits and veggies, how to get started with your own DIY bin, and the business of worm farming. We even dabble in death with talks of earth-friendly burial methods. 
But first, a word from our sponsor, MJ Relief, the CBD-infused muscle rub, PhD designed for what aches and pains you. Our challenge was to choose an entourage of ingredients, all with anti-inflammatory, pain-relieving, and or skin-soothing qualities. And the finished product is strong enough for performance athletes and gentle enough for sensitive skin like mine. Explore our formulation and support your body and my small business at mjskinrelief.com. You'll always save 10% using promo code CASUALLYBAKED, all one word, at checkout. That's mjskinrelief.com. Promo code CASUALLYBAKED. And if you're listening on your phone, scroll down in the podcast app you're using to see the episode notes where you'll find links to this offer and more from other Casually Baked partner brands. Shopping podcast affiliates is a win-win because you saving money on the things you want supports the production of this show. It's the friend economy in action. Now, if putting your hands in the dirt brings you peace, this podcast is for you. It's also for anyone wanting to uplevel their gardening game or looking to work in regenerative agriculture. Or perhaps like me, you're trying to diversify your farmer ranch's income. I ask Dan a lot of questions and receive valuable insight that I'm excited to share with you. So smoke them if you got them and settle in. It's time to get casually baked. If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base, a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095 or visit collateralbase.com. It's a time. We had a high time together. Together. Hello, Dan Razor. Thank you so much for joining me on an episode of the podcast. Thank you. So, Dan, you are fed and happy. We are. Uh, a serial entrepreneur and worm farmer. And as somebody who grew up on a working cattle ranch, when I heard of worm farming, I kind of giggled a little bit. Um, so I'm excited to talk about what you call the kings of composting today, being earthworms. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, it's, I had a day where it was not going very well and started thinking about soil and how did I learn about soil? And it was about worms. And one thing led to another. That's so funny when you're like, I had a bad, was having a bad day. <laughs> so I started thinking about the soil and we need way more people doing that. So I hope our conversation today is inspiring for people to think a little bit more about that ecosystem that's happening right underneath our feet. 
And I think that's a really good place for us to just kind of dive into the conversation. Of course, at the end, I do want to circle back to, you know, kind of what got you started on this path. But initially, I'd love to dive into the role of worms in the soil ecosystem and how people um, like you are putting that into practice in regenerative agriculture. Well, worms as a whole are, they're in the, they're the intestines of the soil. So they're the cleanup, uh, cleanup crew. The actual biology, the fungi, the bacteria, they're doing the bulk of the work. But then the worms eat the fungi and the bacteria um, and then give us a clean product. Uh, they're also miracle Grow well before there was miracle Grow, And their poop is actually encapsulated in a protein that helps make it uh, plant available. So they're like little garbage compactors. They just eat and shit. They are. Uh, they are accumulators. <laughs> so um, you can put them in heavily contaminated soils and they'll help clean that up as well as organically robust soils as well. So they're pretty diverse, but they are voracious eaters. And so if you don't see worms, you need to be looking at your soil content and what's going on underneath so, the feet. So seeing worms is the sign of healthy soil. And I, I want to step back a little bit because when you say that they can clean up soil, how does that work? They are, they are accumulators. So they are consuming bacteria and fungi that have also consumed uh, both good and bad, whether that be heavy metals or good organic material. And then using the chemistry processes, uh, their guts are filled with enzymes uh, that break down break down that material. So they might be consuming all of this contaminated material, but they are made to withstand that. They are. They're made to withstand it. So the average lifetime is two to four years for a worm. During that period of time, they're going to reproduce and poop out uh, a significant amount of material. How do they reproduce? We work with primarily red wigglers. Uh, so they're both male and female. Uh, but it still takes two to reproduce. Uh, and they become sexually active at five weeks old. And in a perfect world, they produce a new cocoon every three to four days. Uh, but in a more realistic world, it's about once a month. Interesting. I just am thinking back to science class, probably in junior high when we dissected a worm. Do they regenerate? Like if a worm gets cut in half, does it... <laughs> How does that work? Are they just so, dead? <laughs> it really depends on where they get cut. I think all of us heard that, you know, you cut a worm in half, you have two worms. Well, in reality, you probably have one worm and a dead worm, or <laughs> in some cases, two two dead worms. But it is pretty fascinating. Worms have two hearts, um, the red wigglers, and so they can handle being cut off and still regenerate and continue to live a, a healthy life. So you said specifically red wrigglers or wigglers? Red wigglers. So Enciafetia, um, and they're a composting worm. Uh, and you notice them because they're red. Uh, and the more oxygen they have, the redder they get. And so the redder they are, the healthier they are? Yes, that is correct. 
Okay. And so I know that, you know, one of the important things about soil health is there being plenty of aeration. So that's the another one of the roles of these worms, right? Absolutely. So everywhere they're going, they are making a tunnel. They're adding oxygen, uh, but they're also going where the oxygen is at. So if you have soils that are are devoid of oxygen, you're not going to find many worms there because it's also devoid of good aerobic bacteria, uh, and the worms need that oxygen as well. And so that's why tillage can be so harmful is that anytime we till, we're actually breaking all those tunnels that the worms are utilizing to move around, but also to move nutrients up and down. Mm-hmm. Now you when you said that they have two hearts and then you specifically said the red wigglers, is that just like species specific or do all worms have two hearts? It is species specific. There are, there's thousands of worms um, in the world. So the number of hearts also varies. That's so fascinating. Do any of them have more than two hearts? I think the most is four, but I'm not positive. Uh, you can go down a rabbit hole, literally. Uh, <laughs> go down the wormhole. <laughs> okay, so what are the benefits of, you know, they're aerating the soil, but then you said these worm castings. So their poop, what is the benefits of their poop for our soil and all the things that we decide we want to grow in our garden? So it's it's taking the nutrients that are in our soil and making them plant available. So forming other bonds, molecules, and setting it up in a way that uh, the plants can absorb it through the root system. And they literally act in a very symbiotic and a, and a full life cycle, whereas the plants will literally feed the biology, the worms eat the biology, and then give back nutrients for the plants. It's pretty cool in the fact uh, we design our systems as a worm pasture. So we plant cover crops on top of our rows and the red wigglers cannot actually eject their own cocoon. So just by having the root structure, uh, that root structure knocks the cocoon off. And then since cocoons are osmotic, the plants at nighttime literally are feeding those cocoons. And then they hatch red wigglers uh, ideal hatch point as 21 days since the plants are feeding those cocoons, we get a faster reproduction rate because the cocoons are fed. So when you say osmotic, you mean that they can absorb things through the... Through the... Whatever. Through the, of the, the cocoon. So What is that made of, that skin of the... I mean, so it, it's breathable, obviously, but... It's breathable, and it looks like a, a cocoon for a red wiggler looks like an iridescent piece of millet to milo. Um, or sorghum. So anywhere from about uh, a 16th of an inch uh, to right around just over an eighth of an inch in diameter. Uh, and they're slightly teardrop. So you really have to know what you're looking for. Yeah. It's one of those things that anytime you need to see cocoons and you want to show somebody, it's hard to find because they're so small. Yeah. Uh, okay. So tilling is terrible for the soil ecosystem. So what is the recommendation for moving the soil in a way that isn't terrorizing, so to speak, um, the soil? In a no-till fashion, you're literally using the roots, the roots and the worms to go and keep, uh, keep both aeration and reduce your compaction. All right. Uh, So you're literally just saying nature, do your thing. Letting nature do your thing. Um, 
that anywhere possible, reducing the use of monoculture crops or adding in cover crops. So we use turnips, radishes, um, grasses, milos, oats, looking for that diversity in a root structure mm-hmm. uh, to work with a cash crop such as a corn, beans, cannabis, et cetera. Right on. And we got a good lesson in that from Gabe Brown on the podcast a while ago. So if you need more on that, go back on to casuallybake.com and search for um, Gabe's podcast. For now, I want us to keep trucking and go into DIY worm farming. So yes, we could buy worm castings from somebody like you at Fed and Happy. But if I wanted to create this on my own? Is that something that's relatively simple for a backyard gardener to do? Absolutely. So we sell worms. We start by selling worms by the pound. Um, So you can order a pound of worms. Uh, We also sell a starter kit. And with that starter kit, you take the starter kit, mix it with the goods that you have at your home, whether that be leaves, grass in moderation, kitchen scraps, um, in the home environment, some paper is good to absorb the moisture. As a whole, we like to stay away from paper, but in the home composting sense, it definitely has some value. And so how big is a space if you're creating a small worm farm? So my my preferred size is a Sterilite bin, a 28-quart bin, and it's two feet long, 15 inches wide, and about seven inches deep. So where does it live? It can live underneath your sink, they're not going to smell. Um, the only time a worm bin is going to smell is when it's poorly managed. Uh, and typically you're letting it get too wet, feeding it too much food. So it's another reason why I like them to be in the house because if they're in the house, you're managing more, you're, you're smelling how, how everything's working. Okay. So we wouldn't have our worm bin outside at all. It needs to be in some place where you can control the climate. As far as having them outdoors, outdoors is an option as well. Um, They do prefer to be a little bit warmer um, and also not too hot. Um, Their ideal range is in that 60 to 90 degrees for for the worms to thrive. Okay. All right. And then starting a worm farm, how long until you're starting to reap the benefits and get the, the worm castings? I like to harvest castings almost as quickly as they're produced. And that way you're putting material in and you're also taking material out. A lot of times um, you can just put material in, keep putting it in. And sometimes you can get those bins a little bit stagnant. So as far as getting your first castings out, I like to wait about four weeks. And then literally just taking your hand and scraping off that top surface and then immediately putting that in with your plants. Again, it's that constant management and you're involved with your worm farm and utilize it with your plants and seeing that difference. Okay. So you said scrape off the top, but if I'm a worm and I'm going through the soil and I'm eating and shitting, isn't it not happening under the soil? It is. It's happening both. But in a home worm bin, typically you're going to see those castings right on the surface and it's going to look like the pitter patter after a sprinkle of a rain. Uh, So it's just going to be a very textured surface, very dark and full of life. This is fascinating. So they crawl up to the top to poop. 
Well, typically you're feeding on the surface as another example. So the surface is a little bit more rich than the rest of the bin. Okay. All right. So we have our bin layered with brown and, and green compostable ingredients or whatever. Or, it's and definitely going to start out as layered. Um, you're not going to end up there. The worms are going to mix it all up together. Uh, there are some very cool YouTube simulations or videos showing how a pumpkin is eaten and how the worms actually take those nutrients back. So very similar to a ant farm, worms do the same thing of how they okay. move nutrients up and down in a soil. Yeah. Somebody who knows way more about this than I do, kind of like you, you're sitting here smiling at me when I ask all these questions because I'm like, this is fascinating. I have no idea. So I'll make sure that we include some links to YouTube videos, whether that's something that you've made or just some DIY because I like a visual concept before I dive into a project and I would definitely need to see what the hell this looks like. And it's important to remember diversity. So we don't do very well if we eat the same thing day in and day out. Same thing with the worms that, you know, they may love a cantaloupe and how sweet a cantaloupe is or watermelon, but it's also important to throw in some grains, some grasses, uh, looking for that diversity. And that way you're also feeding a bigger biodiversity within your fungi and your bacteria, uh, throwing some wood chips. And the more diversity we have within our bacteria and fungi, the more beneficial as a fertilizer our castings are going to be. That makes sense. So let's talk about some of the benefits of worm castings. A lot of the cannabis farmers that I know, they use worm castings. Several of them have their own worm farm. So I feel like there are benefits that we can talk about around cannabis. Um, when you and I talked before, you also talked about some benefits for the mushroom industry and people that are creating the substrate, you know, the substrate manufacturers. So talk a little bit about what you see. So basically, if there is a, if you're growing something, there's an application for utilizing worm castings. Um, the way worm castings make nutrients more available, the way they also improve aeration, uh, water absorption, water utilization. So on the cannabis industry, and a lot of that also drives just to nutrient availability. It doesn't just stop at the plant. It also go into the flower, the fruit. So I'd say within the cannabis industry, significant increases in terpene levels uh, and higher quality flower, also higher volume in flower uh, because of the castings. Uh, same thing on the mushroom side, changes in that nutrient aspect and more volume of total mushrooms produced. So how does the, the mushroom industry use the worms? So How does that work? That was a, a big question that we asked once our mushroom substrate uh, buyers started buying from us because after they buy the castings from us, they literally pasteurize the product. And so we asked, why do you buy worm castings and why do you buy our worm castings? And they said, we buy for your good biology. I said, well, but you go and kill our biology as soon as you, you buy it from us. And they laughed and said, we know, but what it actually comes down to is the enzymes and the hormones that the worms, and the rest of biology are producing, which actually those hormones and enzymes signal fungal growth. And so then once they inoculate the substrate, utilizing our castings, that fungal growth is activated. It gets pasteurized at which stage? So the enzymes and the hormones remain 
all of our living biology is killed off in the pasteurization process, but the enzymes and hormones um, are available. So then once, once those blocks are inoculated with the new fungi, it takes off. Copy that. Okay. That makes sense. And then with the backyard garden, I'm just assuming, yeah, we just have a way more lush garden without having to use a lot of um, synthetic fertilizers. Yeah. A lot of additional crap. So this is a weird parallel, but I'm working on a skincare line. I'm somebody who I want to take care of my skin, but I don't want to do 50 steps. I'm out. Like, don't ask me to put something on my eyes and around my lips and use something different on my decolletage and, you know, my forehead, scalp, whatever. I just want, give me one thing that's going to work really well. And I want to stick with that. And I know I do that every day. So, you know, that's kind of what I'm trying to create for myself is like one-stop shop for skin health. And I feel like that's what worms can do for us. Like we put our love, time, and attention into this one thing, and then we don't have to look for all of the other things. Um, the entourage effect of trying to grow a garden, so to speak. That's absolutely correct. And so uh, you, the first thing you're going to notice is a better root structure. The next thing you're going to notice is the plants are significantly more vascular. And so as those plants are more vascular, it gives them more ability to move nutrients up and down, uh, which also makes them more photovoltaic efficient. So you're going to see a higher sugar level within those plants, which also means that they're going to be feeding the soil more because the plant is more efficient. And you're right, it is, ends up being very much a, not quite a one size fits all, but worm castings have multiple uses uh, as well as helping the plants resist insects. Mm -hmm. uh, because of that higher sugar level, uh, the pest insects are going to find these plants less less desirable, or in some cases, uh, if the plant tries to eat them, it'll actually kill them, which then allows your pollinators more food to thrive. And so one of the first things that you're going to notice after applying worm castings or an extract to plants is how many pollinators are around those plants. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, that's one of the things that was really fun to see this year in, I want to say our garden because I live with my sister and Dion now, but Crystal and Dion's garden, there were so many amazing pollinators. I have seen different bees and moths and butterflies and just like there was constantly something new flitting about and you know she uses your worm castings yeah. um she also uses slow dirt which i am a huge fan of i've had them on the show before as well and what you talk about that the worm castings do is what happens with their um, soil amendment is there anything that you really do think partners well with the worm castings that you're on board with or is it just worm castings you know, our biggest thing with worm castings is making sure that we have enough food for the soil. And so I think the best thing that partners with worm castings is good organic material. It's far easier for us to put biology into the soil than it is to feed that soil. And part of the reason why we lose some of our diversity is because we just run out of food uh, to feed all that biology that we put in there. And so... Um, good cover crops. Leaves are a great pair. And in some cases, manure in the right amounts as well. Mm -hmm. 
if you are buying something though, uh, make sure to buy something with good carbon content. Okay. So earlier you mentioned that you can just buy a bucket of worms or, you know, you can buy the starter kit or whatever. Well, if we live somewhere where we don't have soil, we have dirt, it's completely compact. Like you can't just buy the worms and dig a hole and throw them in there and cover them up and expect magic. So what do we need to do in advance to prepare to, you know, welcome the red wigglers or whatever into our environment? So to help with that advanced side, we have a starter pack. Um, and that starter pack, you literally just open up and mix in your other items, whether that be from your kitchen, paper, any waste that you can find, and the worms will thrive in that. If you do have other material, the biggest thing that you need to do is start your bin about a week week before with whatever material you're going to have, uh, put some food scraps in it, and you want something that's going to decay. So seeing a little bit of mold in your bin before you put the worms in is a good thing. Okay. Uh, the biggest failure point for new worm owners, whether that be a great big thousand ton farm or a small home, home composter is the fact that they may have food, but they don't have the biology that's eating the food. And a common misconception is the fact that worms don't eat the food, they eat the biology. So they're eating the bacteria and the fungi not the other way around. Okay. So when we're talking about this, it's like you're giving these worms their own little home and then you take their excrement and put it out wherever you need it. So, okay. They don't, you're not taking your worms and putting them in the dirt near your garden or anything. They have their own little condo. You can utilize it in a garden. Uh, but if you do choose to utilize worms in a garden, you need to make sure it's a very rich, rich organic food base. Uh, if you don't, again, the worms aren't going to have enough food and you're going to notice that the worms are either very, very small or they die or try to go somewhere else. Okay. Now, we're talking initially about a bin that would you know, fit under a kitchen sink or something like that. How big of a garden does that service? With a single bin, you're not going to service much of a garden. Uh, you're going it's like to like a flower more, bed. You're going to be more on that flower bed size. Okay. Uh, and the rule of thumb is that you don't want to exceed about 20% of your soil to be worm castings. Above that, you end up just getting too rich. It's not that it's going to burn the soil. It's the fact that your plants li- literally don't feel any stress. Um, and most plants need to feel a little bit of stress in order to flower, produce seed. Um, they're kind of like mm-hmm. us. If if we have everything we need, sometimes we get a little bit lazy. Soft and lazy and ain't <laughs> nobody wants you. Yeah. Uh-huh. I feel you because with wine or with cannabis, <laughs> like it having that stress that really brings out the terpene profile and the cannabinoid content. I mean, that's one of the problems that hemp farmers have here in Texas is that the heat stresses the hemp so much that it will shoot the THC levels up. And then that, that hemp is too hot to use here in the state. So that makes a lot of sense. I think on the hemp side, uh, the last couple of years, there's been so much improvement on the genetics too, on keeping those THC levels down to a legal limit too. 
I'm excited to have a conversation with the the department at Texas A&M who is doing the cannabis and hemp genetics and breeding program. I've recently been introduced to those folks. So yeah, I'm ready to go down that wormhole too. <laughs> um, okay. So now let's talk about worm farming as a business. Great. If we're interested in diversifying what we're doing on our farms and ranches is worm farming big business. It is. And so one of the aspects that we provide to other farmers is actually building worm farms on site. Uh, oftentimes when you have thousands of acres, bringing that material uh, from our facility in Kansas or elsewhere is just too much of a trucking obstacle. So um, we'll go and actually build that farm and it may be 100 tons or it may be 5,000 tons uh, all to be utilized on that local farm. Uh, to be turned into either extracts, so a liquid product, or to be spread out as a solid product, both for soil reme remediation, uh, insecticide replacement, fungicide replacement, and and some fertilizer replacement. And you find that the more the higher your carbon level is within your soil, the less nitrogen, the less synthetics you're going to need. Okay, so if we're doing this uh, on a business level. What's the size, the facility that we're creating um, for this space? How big is it? So anywhere from a 10-foot by 40-foot area to uh, to a couple acres. Okay. And as far as indoor-outdoor, um, we tend to do hybrid um, where we can do everything outdoors or um, a little bit indoors. Our main facility in Kansas is all indoors, but we have other facilities that are all outdoors. Uh, and I actually like the outdoor aspects that, yes, you have the variability of Mother Nature, but where you have that variability, you can also build in a lot more diversity within your cover crops. So whether that be the radishes, turnips, um, the grasses, the pumpkins, and so we can get more mycelium, we can get uh, a better relationship between our bacteria and fungi going on. Okay. And so what is the investment to start a worm farm? You know, the investment on starting a worm farm starts as low as around $50 and goes up as high as about $50,000, uh, depending on the scale that you're trying to work on. Okay. And what is, a, let's say, an entry point into this industry where you're like, okay, I want this for not only my farm and ranch, but I do want to turn around and be a wholesaler, distributor, whatever, and create these products? Like what's kind of that entry point? I think a good entry point of that you're really going to be in the business is in that five to $15,000 range. Okay. All right. Dan, my sister and I are having some serious <laughs> conversations about worm farming. If you can not tell by my questioning, I recently out in the wild of my life, met um, one of the directors for the USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Services Department. And he said, one of my jobs is to give grants to female ranchers. What do you need? I'm like, hold please. I'll come, <laughs> <laughs> I'll come back with the list. In the past couple of years, NRCS is is opening them up more and more to vermiculture, worms. Um, in the past, I'd say 
given that it's hard to test from a chemistry aspect. So looking at our MPK levels, uh, it didn't fit, fit nicely into the bucket that NRCS and USDA was looking for, but that is definitely starting to change over the last 24 months. Yeah. And he, you know, he said, I'm open-minded. What do you need? You know, because one of the things I was talking to him about was being able to use hemp as feedstock for our animals, which is something that isn't quite legal yet. They have made it legal now, I think, for chickens and horses. It's very close. I know K-State in Kansas is um, has a research study currently, and I think in the next probably year, you're going to see more legalization on the hemp side. Yeah, I think so too. And I'm just, you know, trying to be prepared and have whatever opportunities are available for my own family. I want to have a, a good grasp of it. And the worm farming thing is something that not only serves you as a farmer and a rancher, but then could also create a whole new revenue stream that people don't even think about Right. if you're not into regenerative agriculture. So I feel like, you know, if people are right now in the cannabis space, you know how brutal it is right now for these people who have given their entire life to a plant that now they are getting shut out because they can't afford licensing fees or taxes or whatever. And they're like, what do I do? And this to me seems like an opportunity. I think regenerative agriculture is a fantastic place for growers that are looking for a new opportunity and all that innovation that made them successful within the cannabis industry uh, can propel them to a very different level but still a very significant level of success within traditional row crop and grazing technologies. This is something um, that you had mentioned to me about these job opportunities within regenerative agriculture. You might not want to start your own worm farm, but there are other things that you had mentioned, um, you know, the agronomist thing. So just kind of Talk about what you're seeing in the industry and where you see these opportunities. So right now we have an extreme shortage of agronomists, especially regenerative agronomists within the industry. And I think for every job posting that you see out there, there's probably another hundred that are going under unfilled currently within regenerative agriculture. Um, and it is a very much a growing industry. Uh, but even even setting the regenerative side aside, agriculture as a whole was looking for people and looking for good innovators. And so you add the regenerative side to it and the opportunity is is everywhere. And I really feel like once you start utilizing regenerative agriculture in your life, everything else gets more beautiful. You know, there was a stat that I overheard so I don't know where it came from, but it said that the highest rate of suicide is amongst farmers. It is. And, <laughs> you know, it's like, wow, that doesn't make me want to jump in. But this literally is the turning of the tides. This is people waking up to the fallacies of big ag and and what they've been doing that has disconnected them from themselves and nature and the whole ecosystem of creating food and 
So I feel like whenever I hear that stat, I'm like, yeah, in the old model, that makes a lot of sense to me. But I also think that this is an opportunity to be that tide of change in building our, our food systems and changing the way we do things and localizing the whole structure of, of food is an important thing to step into. It's incredibly important. And we're every day we're empowering the farmer uh, and putting more money back into their pocket, their family. And it is so exciting when you see a farmer at a conference texting their kids and saying, hey, we have a solution that you can come back and farm with us. Uh, that's pretty exciting. Yeah. Uh, see that. Well, and you know, when I was a kid and I'm like a 16 year old <laughs> talking to my dad saying, hey, you know, when do you think that you're going to want to retire? And of course he's like, you know, 85 or something. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, okay. And just saying, I'd like to come home and like, we need to do this together for a few years so that I'm educated and can take on this role and responsibility for our family. And my whole life, he's just said, no, you don't want this. You don't want this life. I don't want this life for you. And now, you know, he just turned 76 on the 18th, just what, yesterday, day before. And now I'm the one that's excited about agriculture and Crystal's excited about agriculture and we're wanting to go home and do this. And, you know, his head is still in that old big ag mentality where that's, those are the farmers that kill themselves. You know what I mean? It's baby steps. And it's looking at what problem do they have that big ag hasn't necessarily fixed for them? Is that a fungus? Is that an insect problem? And when we can fix that naturally, it, it's that gateway to stepping up more and more in that, okay, well now let's drop the phosphorus. Let's, let's reduce our nitrogen. And, and then they can't help but getting excited. And if you've got animals on the farm, um, you know, the first thing I notice is that the insects start re reacting and then the birds and then the animals. And it's fun to see grass um, when you can increase that sugar level and then watching how the cows go after that grass that's been fed with a, a worm extract or a casting is pretty fun. Well, and I think for me, for me and my sisters, and for a lot of people out there, it's convincing that other generation that this is actually possible. And, you know, the mentality has been, the problem with that is blank. The problem with that is blank. Every solution you provide, they provide another problem. And so in my mind, it's just, as we would say in my family, hide and watch. All right, just let me do this. You hide and watch. <laughs> Because it speaks for itself when you actually just let it happen. Right. And I think the key is you've just got to get started. The best time to start with biology was yesterday. So today will work just fine. And you can't worry about how crazy everybody else thinks you are. Uh, and it, it just kind of takes care of itself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I was just talking to my dad about leasing the ranch or a part of it or whatever and just like put it together. Like I'm putting my plan together. So if we're not going to do this together, then 
then let me lease the land and and show you what I want to do. So I'm excited about this for myself and my family, and I hope other people get excited about it for, you know, whether or not that's their own small-scale cannabis grow or they want to, you know, help their family diversify their income on their own farmer ranch. Right. Let's talk about the logistics of shipping worms and and how you do all of that. So we ship worms across the country every week um, and some internationally and we hand sort all of our worms so that way they have as little stress as possible. And then some of those worms go out via UPS. Some are hand delivered to a warehouse that then get delivered to retail stores every week. And some literally get put on airplanes and delivered right to the customers. Um, and what packaging are they in? Cause they got to breathe. So what are they in? So we start literally from an eight ounce cup that goes out to retail stores all the way up to, um, boxes that have anywhere from 10 to 25 pounds of worms in them that are in with a substrate that allows them to breathe and also continue to eat a minimal amount of food. And our largest airplane box currently holds about 65 pounds of worms. And those go out from Kansas to places like Canada or California, Arizona or the East Coast on a daily basis. Is there any sort of weird shipping rules around around this? Like, does it cost extra? Like, what's how does that work? It doesn't cost extra, but we're all we're always looking at time. Um, we don't ship worms via UPS. On we only ship them on Mondays and Tuesday unless you're close. Um, we don't want the worms sitting in a warehouse over the weekend. As far as our airplane shipments, I mean, we make sure that you know they're not going to escape our packaging and all that stuff and. If they're going to, say, Canada, they have to be in a soil-free, so we use a peat moss or a coconut Mm -hmm. product uh, to make sure that they're soil-free when they're shipped. Yeah. When you said that, I immediately thought about snakes on a plane. I'm like, well, it wouldn't (laughs) be as impactful (laughs) as snakes on a plane and just have worms, but that's pretty funny. We had had some worms get delayed in a um, hurricane, and... And so there were a few escapees uh, and the report that came back to us from the baggage handlers was that there were worms all over and there was like two, but uh, (laughs) it had been so rare that they had seen anything like that, that they were freaking out. Yeah. Okay. So is there anything that I didn't ask you that you think is important for us to know about the worm stuff before I go in to ask you about some other crazy shit you're involved with? So on the worm stuff, I mean, you talked about the cosmetics and we also use worm castings to produce um, soap um, because it hydrates the skin. It opens up your pores. It increases skin elasticity and then uh, eliminates acne and reduces wrinkles. Shut the front door. So it's pretty, pretty cool little product there. And literally inspiration came from a couple that had a company in Israel and they had been traveling the world for the last decade and asked about us supplying worm castings. And then, so we started testing and that's um, where it's at today. And so. That's fascinating. I mean, maybe I'm like looking at my skin. Now, like <laughs> maybe I can do a worm poop mask. That's cool. 
I mean, you don't, unless you know that it's worm poop, you really don't know that it's worm poop. Um, but it's pretty cool. What's the texture of it? Um, it's a slight exfoliation. So you'll, on the soap, there's some bumps, um, bumps on it. But other than that, you don't notice that what you're putting on your skin. Does it, what does it smell like? What do worm casting smell like? So we mix it. Uh, it smells very earthy, um, very neutral smelling, but we mix it with eucalyptus or lemongrass or lavenders. So you don't smell the worms at all. Okay. So when you talked about having an indoor outdoor setup, the indoor, is that the place where you actually are taking the worms and those are the worms that you're selling? Is one better than the other for whether or not it's the actual worms or the castings that you're producing? So they both have their pros and cons and you can definitely overcome the pros and cons uh, depending on how you manage the system. And our systems are all designed around natural. And so when I started, I started off with that Sterilite bin that I talked about and we had up to a thousand of them filled with worms and constantly cycling. And we still utilize those for insurance purposes or if we're building a worm farm for somebody else, it allows us to transfer both worms and biology. Uh, but our primary design, whether it be indoors or outdoors, is a large bed that looks like a, a big pasture setup that's planted and it's just filled with worms uh, cycling that soil. And we do the same thing, whether that's inside or outside. Uh, and we feel like that allows us to produce the best fertilizer um, and the highest quality worms. Okay, so what's the lighting system that you use indoors? So indoors, um, we use some LED lights, but as a whole, we keep it fairly dark. Um, we were planning on pre-pandemic to switch it all to a red light system that doesn't bother the worms. Um also can kind of increase reproduction, but give enough light for, for employees, um, you know, with the pandemic and the availability of LEDs, et cetera, uh, that project was tabled. Uh, but as a whole, you know, we use headlamps and we don't need a lot of light for the worms. We do have some windows in there. Which well, but if you're, if you're having cover crop or you, you've got stuff planted on top of it, then how do your plants grow without having any kind of light? So on um, in our Kansas facility, we only get about six weeks worth of growth on our cover crops. Uh, and then we were replanting. Um, in our greenhouse operations or outdoors, uh, we're getting a much longer life out of those cover crops. We may add LED light in, in our Kansas facility just because of wanting those cover crops to thrive more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What cover crop do you plant that doesn't need that much light? We plant a lot of grasses. We plant oats, uh, some mung beans, uh, peas, radishes. Um, and we just know that we're not, we don't expect the same thing out of our worm beds from a cover crop as we would in a normal field or in a garden. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's mostly just we care more about what's happening below the soil, not what pops right. up on the top. Yep. Okay, copy that. So now on to the next crazy thing that you're involved in. Talk to me about composting humans. So we provided a biology, uh, biology pack for composting humans in September of 2021. 
when I saw that human composting was going to become legalized in Colorado. Uh, but utilizing primarily a, a method very similar to livestock composting. And I was introduced to livestock composting in 2004. And the primary purposes of livestock composting are to keep your local or to keep your state EPA off your back and to make sure that you don't have any smells and to clean up those uh, carcasses as fast as possible. And typically a very hot process. Um, it's not designed to create the best fertilizer or to do stuff in the most humane ways. And typically it, it has to be fairly mechanical to break everything up. And I knew we had the ability to provide a much more humane process um, and one that would provide a much better fertilizer. And so I look at the process that we're literally, we're taking life and giving life back. And we do that in a, um, in a process that is very minimal on the mechanical aspect and very natural and watching the human or watching the families and that not only closure, but also growth aspect. Uh, watched one family that instead of going to the cemetery, they go see uh, their husband or their dad's, um, their dad's tree. Um, and uh, it's pretty, pretty cool process. Okay. So how does this work? So much like how we build our worm bins, um, whether that be a bin or a row, we just build a formula with our biology that then literally decomposes the human and um, dust to dust, ash to ash in a time period of less than six months. Okay, pause. So it's probably been 12 years ago. I read about something called the mushroom death suit uh -huh. and I forwarded it, shared it with my whole family. And I said, why would we embalm ourselves or be, be get embalmed, you know, as, as a corpse and then spend $20,000 for a ridiculous box and dig a hole and put it at our family cemetery on the ranch. Why would we do that? That's ridiculous. Why wouldn't we do something like this? And it's like this gauzy material that's put over the corpse that is got um, spores, mushroom spores all in it, and you lay the body into the ground, the mushrooms eat it up, and your food for the soil, and yes, a tree could grow or whatever. And I freaked the majority of the people in my family out with that idea, but this is that. This is that idea. So someone's loved one passes away. What is this process like? So, um, not just getting them in the ground, getting them to you to get them in the ground. So there's a process of, you know, working with your local state, um, on your death certificate. We've discussed some options, uh, actually doing a, a ceremony in your home state, um, and then transported to Colorado where the process actually happens. And you're mixed with the materials. Um, you're what we call a laying in process. So, similar to a major, you're laid in um, with the substrate and the straw and the wood chips and um, and then you're laid there to rest um, with the microbes, the fungi, um, and you're returned 
back to dust. So in my mind, I'm thinking about these, now I'm thinking about your indoor worm farm and just like, oh, in this five, six foot section, here's John Doe. And in this section, there's Jane Doe. And then these people get this soil, like sent to them. We don't do any of it. Uh, we don't do any of it in Kansas, but, and then the law does state that everyone has to be in their own individualized vessel. So, uh, so the vessel is about three foot by seven feet, uh, about three feet deep. Um, and you're in your space and it's okay. your soil. Okay. And so then after a six month process, this soil is sent to the family. Right. Um, typically, the family will pick up the soil. Some families will choose to keep all that soil together in one bag or one spot, and other families choose to send that soil out throughout the world. So it's really a both a personal preference and belief standpoint. This is so fascinating. So what is the uh, cost of such an alternative means of burial? The cost is, um, it's less than $10,000 depending on everything that you're choosing to do or not do. And, um, whether you want a public ceremony or, um, what we call the lane in process. You know, if you bought a $10,000 casket, <laughs> somebody at the funeral would whisper that it was cheap. Right. Like that's how ridiculous the cost of dying is. Right. You know, dying is a huge business. So there are no chemicals with this. It doesn't matter what type of cremation you look at or or the embalming process. Um, the chemical and the carbon footprint of dying is actually very high. And in this case, you are carbon negative and you are truly going back to the soil in a very beneficial way. Without pumping the body full of chemicals to preserve it without pickling it how does one get from the point of death to where it needs to be in an efficient manner where you're not like you know so much like a traditional death you're still looking at cold packs or refrigeration until the actual laying in process happens okay so the ten thousand, this is like putting you on ice getting you where you need to go right doing that okay I mean, I know I'm talking about this in kind of a, I'm smiling and it's a little bit flippant the way I'm saying these things, but I love how people are thinking outside of the box to figure out how to be of service to what we're doing here on earth school, you know, and that this is even a concept and something that people are doing. If you want to sign up for something like this, how does that work? Um, you go to naturalfuneralhome.com um, and you can contact the team that way, um, discuss it and work on pre-planning as well. And so, I mean, the number I've heard is that for every acre of cemetery, there's Olympic swimming pool size of formaldehyde sitting there in an unregulated state. And we can do better than that. So. Yeah. I mean... And how is it even possible, too, with all of these, with the caskets that are made? Like, I mean, when I look at these things, I'm like, that thing's not decomposing. (laughs) Right. 
I mean, yeah, you have anywhere from the steel to the particle board to the wood caskets. Um, and most of them, yeah, they're meant to, to not decompose. Yeah. And so does the, all- the body just decompose and ooze out the sides of it? Or is it just like giant boxes of formaldehyde sitting there? Well, most vaults are supposed to be um, airtight and waterproof. Right. So, yeah. I think the key word is supposed to be, but. <laughs> Fair enough. So, okay. You are a serial entrepreneur. Right. If anybody can't tell from our <laughs> conversation today with everything you're involved in. You and I have random ties back to the maker community. In fact, do you do you remember Jimmy DeResta? I don't. Oh, okay. So. I got this clipboard out of Maker Fair. <laughs> um, that's what I used to keep all my notes on. But yeah, you've you've done a lot of things as far as entrepreneurship goes, and the fact that you had a moment. How old were you when you were like, I I, w- I need to do things different. I want to completely change everything I'm doing. I don't know. I, I think I was probably always a problem child related to that side. I know one year I got a book of a book of questions and my mom was so excited because she's like, great, you're going to stop asking us so many questions. And it backfired because I literally just used the book to ask more questions. But no, I've always been inquisitive and growing up in an entrepreneurial family, it I never really thought there was another way. Just the let's build something, let's let's see what we can create. Um, and I learned about worms. Um, my grandfather, my great grandfather was a he had the houses built that we lived in, uh, but he was also a fisherman. And so when he was done with his worms, I mean, he'd throw them out into the lawns. And so by the time I was living, uh, the area that was my my dirt box uh, was filled with worms. And my mom is a horticulturist. And so a lot of the composting that I use on a daily basis, I learned when I was a kid. And honestly, I hated it. Like lasagna composting just meant lots of work, hauling lots of grass clippings, and and sometimes it was stinky, but they're pretty simple processes that that we use every day today. You told me you were having a bad day, and you just started thinking about soil and worms. So, what you were doing before? I think you had maker spaces um, that you oh. owned or operated, but like transitioning because I, I know the maker community it a lot of it is about working together being of service how can we be creators instead of consumers the mantra of the maker is a beneficial one but to go from that space to you know taking a hard turn into focusing on soil and worms like what was that um you know, right now it doesn't feel like that hard of turn um, because it was still very much a making aspect and a entrepreneurial aspect, but it was also a healing one. And, you know, that connection to the soil, to nature, uh, it was incredibly healing. And our, our fed and happy name literally came from a day of, of tears of, you know, everything that was going on. And, you know, it dawned on me and it dawned on me for months, but, you know, that aspect that if the worms are fed and happy today, 
then about everything else will take care of itself and it'll fall into place within what I was doing. And, you know, I was talking to somebody else and they said, you know, we all want that. If we can all be just fed and happy, it'll be okay. And so, you know, we literally start with the microbe and end in you. And, and knowing that, you know, some days just being fed and happy may be everything that we accomplish. It doesn't mean that that's what we do every day, but if that's what we do today, that's okay. Yeah. Just being able to be present and like, okay, everything's just fine right now. I have everything I need right now. There's nothing to worry about. Yeah. And, you know, for a lot of us, the last several years that, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like the food, right. shelter things, those those sorts of things have been a little um, more challenging. And, you yep. know, there's been a couple of times in the last couple of years where I wasn't sure where the fuck I was going to live. <laughs> so I totally get that. And I appreciate how, you know, sticking your hands in the dirt and thinking about the soil and, and worms brought all of this to life. I love what you're doing. And yeah, it takes a lot to kind of get going, but at the end of the day, it's easy. Yeah. And working with nature. nature yeah. yeah. Cause I'm just like the way I saw it when I grew up, it all looked really hard. <laughs> like ranching looked hard. Farming looked hard. The farmers and ranchers sitting at the cafe, having their coffee in the mornings, they're bitching and complaining about stuff or how do we get, this write off or get this so-and-so from the government or now we've got this problem and they're offering this solution and you know and it's learning now i'm like they were creating the problem to then sell you the solution or whatever it just all seemed complicated and yeah when i was 16 i felt like i was going to be making a sacrifice for my family to come back and be on the ranch but now you see the methods of regenerative agriculture and working with nature that it feels like a much easier thing to do. Yes. I'm sure still very heart wrenching at times, but, but an easier way to live. Yeah. I think looking at it, keeping it simple, it does make it easier. And, and starting from those very basic building blocks. Right on. Well, if people want to, get to know a little bit more about you or they want to shop fed and happy. Um, what's the best place to hunt you down? Uh, we're on fedandhappy.com or Instagram or Facebook as well. Um, all on fed and happy. And that's fed in happy, not the fed, fed. The letter in happy. Yes. All right. Well, Dan, thank you so much for your time. Crystal and I will uh, reach out to you. Now, do you do consultations for people that are wanting to start this like on a larger scale? We do do consultations and that starts as as simple as a phone call or or Zoom all the way down to us building a worm farm and maintaining a worm farm on site as well. Right on. And you do this in the all 50 states or? Um, around the country and some internationally. Okay. Interesting. It's one thing to like help you build it, but help you build it and then run it. That's all we right. That it's, it's a transition process. And, and so we build most of them as about a three-year transition process. Okay. 
Well, I was about to like let you go, but now I'm like, okay, well then what kind of profits are somebody turning after the three years? Our biggest, um, biggest potential facility that we're working with, I think that they're going to net about $2 million in savings a year and also allow more family members to, to have a successful and healthy life on the farm. And obviously that changes too. And they're utilizing all their own product on other farms. It'll be sold locally as well. So the opportunity is definitely there uh, for the families to not only empower themselves, but also empower others. Right on. I dig it. All right, Dan, thank you so much for your time. And um, yeah, we'll see you again soon on the podcast. If you're inspired by today's chat, I hope you'll share this podcast with your smoke circle. And if you're ready to incorporate worm castings into your garden beds, or you're ready to start your very own worm farm, Fed and Happy has you covered. Head over to the podcast 242 show notes at casuallybaked.com for show and tell pictures and videos from Dan. And use promo code casuallybaked when you shop fedandhappy.com to receive $10 off your purchase of $100 or more. In the show notes, you'll also find details on the ecological burial method of body composting, transforming human remains into soil. And if you're interested in networking, business collaborations, or wellness lifestyle coaching, I encourage you to email your messages, requests, or can of curious questions through the website at casuallybaked.com. Or you can always DM me on social. When I'm there, I'm at Casually Baked on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, The Weed Tube, and Truth Social. However you decide to support our community and this highly responsible cannabis movement, Thank you for doing your part to puff puff pass it on. Is a high time. We had a high time together. Casually baked the podcast was created, recorded, and produced by yours truly. Editing and sound design are in the capable hands of Jamie Humiston at PodConnects. The podcast theme music is by my highly talented friend Seth Walker. If you aren't familiar with Seth's music, you can find High Time on his album, Gotta Get Back, wherever you're buying your music these days. I know he didn't create High Time for me, but it sure as shit sounds like he did, right? I hope you'll tune in next time. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Infused, a cannabis talk show, is a -a one-of-a-kind look inside the cannabis industry. Meet the amazing people who make cannabis businesses bloom as they join host Nick with Francesca and Mike for creative cannabis conversations. Get an honest look at the business of cannabis, including trends, best and worst practices, products, education, and advocacy. Whether you're kind of curious or running a cannabis, Infused has kind of conversations that count. Infused is available on YouTube and is now streaming as part of the PodConnects network. Network.